Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. This episode is supported by the Discover Amarillo app. Discover Amarillo is a free resource for local residents who want to keep up with Amarillo activities, shopping, businesses, and more. The latest added feature is a community calendar with all the city's events in one place. Access this calendar in the upcoming events section of the Discover Amarillo app, which is available for Android and iPhone or at discoveramarillotx.com. And as part of this podcast partnership with Brick and Elm Magazine, I want to give a podcast shout out to Glass Doctor of Amarillo, online at glassdoctor.com slash Amarillo, and to Walcott Studio, online at walcottstudio.com. Read the free e-edition of Brick and Elm's latest issue at brickandelm.com. Today's guest is Emily Hunt. Emily has a PhD, and this is one of those conversations where my guest is so much smarter than me that I barely know what kinds of questions to ask. Emily is the Dean of the College of Engineering and a Professor of Mechanical Engineering at West Texas A&M University, where she teaches about fluid mechanics and thermodynamics and does research on novel nanostructured materials. Now, whether you understand any of that or not, and uh, I don't, you're going to really enjoy this conversation because Dr. Hunt is also the CEO at Buffalo Technology Group. That local company uses antimicrobial technology that Emily developed for the United States Department of Defense, and they're turning it into commercial products that you can buy at Home Depot and other places. So here's Dr. Emily Hunt. Emily Hunt, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Well, I'm excited to have you as a guest, uh, and I want to start with you the same way that I start with all of my guests, and that's just to ask you why you're here. So how did you end up in Amarillo in the first place, or Amarillo Canyon area? So I'm actually from here. My family moved here when I was four years old, so I started kindergarten in Canyon and then graduated from Canyon High. And then I was gone for a few years when I was in college and doing some work. And then my husband and I moved back in 2005, and we've been raising our family here for several years. Where did you move from when you were four? We were in Arlington before we moved back here. Okay. So, sorry, hard for me to remember, right? (laughs) Well, you were four. Yes, my first memories were here. Okay. So you grew up in Canyon, going to Canyon schools. Yes. Um, tell me about that experience, because I know that there are some differences. You know, for, I, I may have a lot of listeners that grew up in Amarillo schools. So do you get a sense that something about Canyon was a little bit different? Well, I love Canyon. So obviously, we chose to move back here and, and raise our family here. I think there's just a wonderful small town feel there, mm-hmm. but we have the university. So it's also a center, you know, of all kinds of, of culture, of athletic events. Uh, it's it's an interesting contrast there. So you get this small town feel, but there's all kinds of things to do and always something going on in town. So you said you left the area for a while to go to college. Yes. What What was your college experience? Where did you go? I guess I left the area as far as the top 26 counties go, but I went to Lubbock, so Texas Tech University. I went still there. in the region. <laughs> yes, I'm still in the region. I went there to study engineering okay. in 1998. We didn't have engineering at WT at that time, and I had 
my dad had encouraged me to to look into engineering and study engineering. And so Texas Tech was the closest location for me to go and went there. And that's where I met my husband. Okay. And we were there all through graduate school. He was teaching and coaching in um, that region there. And then we, we moved back here when WT was starting an engineering program. Tell me about why that field drew you. Because I, I'm, I'm thinking about... You know, over the past 20 or 25 years, there's been a lot of emphasis on STEM and especially women pursuing STEM careers. I feel like you were maybe a little bit ahead of that. So was that something that you were just always drawn to that you were good at? I mean, was, was there a prompt to get you interested in that? I can remember being drawn to math and science from very early elementary school. But I also liked writing and reading as well. So I liked school, Mm -hmm. and I had teachers along the way who would encourage me to um, pursue something a little bit different. I had a fifth grade teacher, um, Mrs. Shepard. She still lives here. But she, in our fifth grade class, we had what was called the Dead Insect Society. And we were all members of this science community where we were learning new things, and we were outside exploring, and then we were writing up our results, which was so novel for me at the time, like the idea that... You could investigate something and then compile a written report was, Mm -hmm. you know, my mind at that time loved that. And so I was encouraged early on to to look at math and science and consider pursuing something in that that area. My dad worked at Pantex when I was growing up and he worked with a lot of engineers. Okay. And so he would tell me, I really think you need to consider engineering. You like math, you like science. You know, the idea of engineering is so abstract for a high school kid. You just say that's what... You have math classes, you (laughs) have science classes. There aren't engineering classes. So you can say, I'm going to go to college and study engineering, but you don't know what that means Mm -hmm. necessarily. We're trying to to work on that right now, actually. But but back then, I didn't know what that meant. And the interesting thing is that nobody told me girls weren't supposed to be engineers until I got to college. And I just couldn't believe it. I was... I even remember my high school calculus teacher, Mrs. Brillhart, we did a self-paced calculus class and she really encouraged me to pursue that. Like, you got to stick with this. And so I was so confident going into to college and in those classes and studying engineering. And I found out very quickly when I got on campus that this is not a place where girls typically... I was going to say, were your <laughs> yeah. classes pretty male dominated? Yeah, I was typically the only female. Were you really? Yes. Wow. So some classes I might have one other female, but typically I was on my own. And that was very new for me. So say, what was that like? Did, was that intimidating? Was it, I mean, did you feel, okay, I'm going to show all these boys? I mean, what, what was that like? I would say I fluctuated. So okay. sometimes I thought maybe it's easier to blend in, mm-hmm. right? To just try to be like everyone else. Um, obviously, that didn't work very well. I tried that at the beginning. It was hard to be in groups. You know, so many things in engineering is teamwork. And it was hard to be in groups because... I really had to show that I was going to contribute to a group before I would even be allowed to be in one. Um, my faculty members were all male, and it was almost just like waiting for, they were just waiting for me to to do something different, mm-hmm. which I tried. I tried. I, I remember calling my dad and saying, okay, I can't do this anymore. I don't, this, I don't fit here. Um, I want to do something that matters. I want to travel. I want to solve problems. You know, I just, I have this bigger picture for what I thought I would do. And all I'm doing is studying. All I'm doing is, you know, and, and with people I'm not even connecting with. And he told me, no, we're not going to, you're not going to, that's back when you could tell kids, no, you're not going to change your major. Um, and he just said, I think this is a fit for you. You don't see it, but you're, you're doing well. And I really think you need to stick with this. And 
you know, he's paying for college, so he can he could decide at that point what I was going to do. But anyway, so I, I stuck with it. My junior year of college, they, um, Texas Tech hired their first female faculty member in mechanical engineering. Okay. And it was just transformative for me. To have someone up there who looked like me and talked like me and could we solved problems the same way. She had a very mathematical background as well. She had actually come from aerospace engineering in, in California. So she, she was bringing even a different kind of perspective. But, oh, I just, I, I can't even tell you what it meant to me. And she was the first faculty member that talked to me about research. Hmm. Um, I remember her saying, hey, you should consider doing research in my lab. I had never, I mean, my, my, I just had never gone there before. So... It's amazing how seeing someone who looks like you in a job really opens up your mind for what you can do. Right. That and kind of representation absolutely. is so important. It is critical. And she's still she's still that way for me right now. So So engineering is a really broad field. I mean, there's a lot of different directions you can take. Was was there a point where it started to maybe clarify for you? this is the direction I want to go. I mean, there's structural engineering, there's civil, there's mechanical. I mean, how did you decide, all right, this is, this is what I'm going to do. When I first went to school, um, my interest in engineering was bio. I want to okay. do something in biomedical or biomechanical engineering. And we see this a lot with females. You want some kind of connection to people. So the life science connection or the medical connection that's what I was looking for. But when I went, I met with a, the department head at Texas Tech, and he said, mechanical is the most, it's the broadest of the undergraduate engineering degrees. If you get a background, an undergraduate degree in mechanical, you can do anything you, in grad school and research and your career. So he encouraged me then to, okay. to study mechanical. It was very broad. So I learned a little bit about everything. And then when I started doing research, for um, her, her name was Dr. Michelle Pantoya. When I started doing research for her, her field was heat transfer and combustion. And so that became my field. It was, you know, the opportunity was there. I had the background from the undergraduate degree. And so I took that path. And it was so exciting because it was, this was early 2000s. And we were just discovering this entire field of nanomaterials. Right. And right. so all of a sudden, all these materials we've been studying for years and years behave differently. And we could do, we could make different combinations of them. We can manipulate them almost at the atomic scale. And so she was one of the leaders in that field at the time. And we had funding coming in from all kinds of government agencies. I mean, we were doing research. I just look back at that time and I'm just so thankful that I was in that place at that time hmm. because it really, it really changed my perspective on what engineers, like how engineering research is meant to impact society. Like there's real problems that we were solving and we were making a difference. And I mean, once I got to that point, I could never, never look back. So I, I want to follow the trajectory of your career. But before we get to that point, I'm, I'm thinking in terms of my listeners and they hear you talk about nanoparticles and nanotechnology. And that's just, it, unless you're in a lab studying it, like, I, I don't know anything about it. I, I don't have any exposure to it. I'm sure I do, and I don't know it. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and, and maybe some of the things that, that you started to have experience with in that lab setting as, as that science was being developed, you know, kind of, kind of on the ground yes. during that time? Give me a little, like, like the briefest education on what that is. Okay. So when I talk about uh, materials on the bulk scale, that's a material that we would normally see. So think about in your mind a piece of aluminum. Okay, everyone can picture that. So when I'm looking at a nanoparticle of aluminum, 
it's 10 times larger than an atom. So if you think about a meter stick, right? Your mom right. had a meter stick or a yardstick. Someone, you've seen it somewhere. If you divide that a billion times, then you have a nanoparticle. So we can't see them. Right. But we can see them under different microscopes. Like we can manipulate them. So what happened is that instead of me starting with aluminum, um, let's say aluminum and nickel, combining those into an alloy, instead of me having to melt those down and mechanically combine them that way, we were able to build a material particle by particle to do what we wanted it to do. Okay. So what was so impactful about this kind of work and is still impactful about it is that all technology, it's like driven by material science. So as we were to, as we look at even jet engines, wind turbines, cell phones, all of those things are dependent upon the materials to have the right thermal conductivity, to have the right strength. to And so the nanomaterials gave us the ability to make the material we wanted instead of just working with materials that always existed. Okay. And was it just that finally the technology existed that could allow you to manipulate things at that tiny level? Or like where, where was the explosion of, of interest in nanotechnology? Where did that yes. come from? Okay, so from a... There's two perspectives. From an engineering perspective, it's all about utilization. We okay. were able to just do what we wanted. Engineers are always wanting to solve a problem using what we have. But from the scientific point of view, materials on the nanoscale are completely different. So they are a different color. They have different material properties. Like it just broke all the rules hmm. from hundreds of years of material science it's everything changed in, in 10 years. Right. And it was from a scientific perspective and an engineering perspective, it was transformative for our fields. So you were in the right place at the right time for what you're interested in and for the exposure that you got and the experience you got. Was was there a, a point where you started thinking, okay, I'm going to take this into the technology sector? And I'm going to work for a big company and develop stuff and, and, you know, do that. Or did you begin thinking you wanted to go the education route? And, and what influenced, you know, that thinking? I remember when I had my first job interview for an engineering job when I, I was um, scheduled to, it was a few months before I was scheduled to graduate. And I went and it was a big, very prestigious company at the time for a mechanical engineering student to have an interview with. And I, I, they flew me there. I spent the day with them. It was just kind of how I'd always pictured this interview period in my life. And and they talked to me about here's what the job would be. And and it's what I thought I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And I, I flew back home that night and I remember my husband um, picked me up. We're both just in college, right? We neither one of we graduated right. together. So we're just college kids thinking about this next phase in our life with a real job where we actually like had a salary. <laughs> and um and I remember him picking me up from and, and I just immediately burst into tears. And he was like, What's wrong? You didn't get it, it didn't go well. And I said, No, I got it. They offered it to me when I was right there. And you know, I just could see him. I, I look back at it now too and remember him just being so confused, like why are we crying? Why, you know, what is sad about this? And I had already started to work on research. And mm -hmm. so I had already seen what the potential there and seen the pace and just the meaning. And so then when I interviewed for this job and I thought this is the next logical phase in my life, this is what we we work towards. I mean, I, I cried thinking about like, this is what I'm going to do. Mm -hmm. And 
And it would be a great job. It would have been a great job. It would still be a great job. And I'm thankful for that opportunity as well. But I knew then, I don't think this is what I'm made for. I've seen this piece of research that it's going to change things and I want to be part of it. And even at that point, I wasn't thinking about education though. Right. So I remember going back and talking to Dr. Pantoja and just saying, I want to go to grad school. I want to do this. And calling my parents and saying, hey, change of plans. I'm going to go to grad school. And, and me going to college in general was a big deal in my family. My dad went to college but when we were kids. And so he was, and, and then my mom didn't go to college. So this was a big deal. And the plan was you go to college and you get a job. Mm-hmm. So then I went to college and changed that a little bit. And you and, went to more college. <laughs> yes. And I remember calling him and saying, I really want to stay in school and I think I'm going to get my master's. And he said, if you're going to get your master's, you're going to stay and get a PhD. And I thought, great. Like, <laughs> this is great news. So that's that's when I, I decided at that point I'm going to go into research. Okay. This is what I want to do. And so a lot of people who end up teaching at the university level um, – you know, some are drawn to it because it's a research university. It gives them the opportunity mm-hmm. to do that research, and then they had to teach a few classes. Right. Others are really drawn to the education side. I mean, was was research the pathway that really pulled you in? Absolutely. As opposed to wanting to be a teacher. Yes, it was research for sure. And has has WT not all or hasn't always been known as a, a big research university? But has has WT given you that? Uh, I guess, that ability to pursue those passions. Yes. I think it's one of the reasons I was so excited to get to come home and be at WT. Mm -hmm. When I interviewed here, I told him, this is what I want to do. Like, I want to do research. I want to develop these labs. Yes, I'm going to teach. That's part of it. But, you know, this is really my passion. And from the beginning, they said, great, let's grow that. Let's do that. And I've had so much support. And engineering was new when Brand you came new. in, right? Yes. I actually remember when I even found out about it, my mom sent me a cutout from the newspaper that WT was going to start engineering degrees. And she sent it to me in the mail. And and I remember thinking, I told my husband, we've got to at least explore this. Because at that time, I was interviewing at different universities for faculty positions. Mm-hmm. Some of them were only research. There was no teaching involved. And I was interviewing with some companies as well. And I said, I think I just have to pursue this. Like for me, this is like my home. This is where I'm from. And there's not an opportunity for kids to study engineering or to even see the other side of engineering, you know? And, and I felt very compelled at that time to, to come home and to do something that mattered here. Okay. Tell me what that has looked like, you know, at WT. I mean, it's part of the Texas A&M system, which obviously has a really uh, well-regarded Absolutely. engineering program. But when you're starting something from scratch at a, a university that's been associated with ag and, and business and things like that. What does that look like? I mean, do they just say, okay, here you go. Let's start an engineering school and, and kind of let you loose? I mean, how does that work when you're starting something from scratch? I think it, it was a good thing for me because so many academic programs and institutions are entrenched and this is the way it's always been. Mm-hmm. So for the engineering at WT, we haven't ever had that. You didn't have any of those institutional barriers. This is how we've always done it. It was 2005, and we were figuring it out as we went. You know, we we all had come from different engineering programs around the country as faculty. And so we were trying to figure out what do our students need to know? How do we connect with agriculture? How do we connect with the industry of our region? And then teach engineering through that lens of – of impact that way. Mm -hmm. And we had so much flexibility from the beginning to design our programs. And every time we, you know, we, we had mechanical engineering and then we added civil engineering 
And then a few years later, environmental and electrical. And it's just been industry need. So because our in, we need power engineers right. here. And so just as there's been local need, we've been able to add programs based on that. And that that really, I think, is a strength of a university like Absolutely. WT. It can be flexible and responsive to... You know, th- there are there are huge businesses coming to Amarillo, you know, in, in this area right now that are going to have a workforce yes. need that doesn't exist. And and so WT's in a position to say, okay, we can pivot and we can start training people for this thing, you know, three yes. or four years from now that's going to be here. Yes. Tell me what the research looks like that you're doing. I, I think everybody has an idea, even if they're not engineers of, of classroom and, and teaching, but like when you're a researcher at a university, what are you doing? Are you just saying, here's an idea and, and I'll try this thing? I mean, is that is that it? In a way, yes. At the beginning. Sure, you, I'm sure it's more formalized no, than no, that. No, it, it all starts with an idea. It's one of the reasons we work with elementary school kids on, if you have an idea, foster it, care for it, develop it. Like, don't let it go. Pursue it. The idea is where it starts. I would say... Then it's a lot of writing because you have to find funding. You okay. have to write external grant proposals. I wrote 40 proposals before I had one yes. Wow. So I had 40 no's before I had one yes. So even a scientist or an yeah. engineer does not need to neglect the English side no. of things. Right? I would say it's actually been one of the most critical aspects of my of my job, still hmm. is now. So So then you write and you write and you write and you finally get someone who says, this could be an idea that we want to pursue and we will fund it. And then you order the equipment, build the lab space, hire the students. It, the hardest part is that initial lab setup because you really have to have support and you have to have help. Now we have great programs. We have new faculty come in. We say, here's what we'll do for you to get you set up. You know, we want you to be successful from the get-go. But back then we were building, like you said, we were building it from scratch. And so I, I still remember um, Dr. James Hallmark, he was our dean of research at the time. Right. He's with the A&M system now. He's wonderful. But he was my first dean of research. And I, I remember going to him and telling him, I need you to buy me this camera. And I need it for my research. And it's going to be really important. And he said, oh, well, yeah, we can get you a camera. And I said, it's $40,000. Yeah. And I remember he paused just for a second. Okay, just walk into Best Buy and <laughs> yeah, grab no. it, right? And he said... If we support this, like, what do you see coming out of it? What are we going to, how are we going to use it? How does it benefit students? How does it benefit your research? And I just remember his initial investment in me. It just inspired me to, to work even harder to, to make it happen at WT and to, pres- you know, produce some work that was useful at that time. So anyways, you, you build a lab and then you start exploring it. You, you build a research plan that's based on science. It's based on math. It's based on a ton of statistics and then you start investigating and failing and failing and failing. And, right. you know, every time we're learning from that and we're pivoting and we're trying something different. And it's fabulous. It's it's the best job. OK, so so tell me about the research that you have done at WT. Um, I know that's it's still pretty broad, but I, I know there are mm-hmm. some specific things that uh, that you've been working on that have you know led in some interesting directions. With the understanding that I'm, I don't know nearly as much uh, science as, as I probably should. But tell me some of the things that that you've been studying and that have resulted from that. One of the first big research grants that I remember getting a yes um, on was from the Department of Defense. It was the Defense Threat Reduction Agency, 
And we were looking at how do we neutralize um, chemical and biological weapons that are being produced in facilities outside the U.S. Hmm. Obviously, you don't want to just blow them up because then you're spreading everything. Right. So, like stuff like anthrax? Yes, just okay. like anthrax. Okay. Um, yes, exactly. It's a spore former. So with something like anthrax, bacteria can go dormant. So you, you don't even know they're there sometimes. And they can be dormant for years and then come back up and cause widespread outbreak. So that's exactly what we're talking about. So we were making different types of materials for the Department of Defense to use um, outside the, the boundaries of the United States. Okay. And this is still like nanotechnology. Yes, it's nano. When you say you were mm-hmm. making these materials. We were making them, yes. Yeah. And it was great. We, I, we had, I had students who were working with me. They were undergraduate students. And so we started this work and we're producing. And we actually came up with a material. It's a solid material. So with combustion, you think about blowing stuff up. Mm-hmm. With combustion of nanomaterials or smaller materials, you can burn them and still have a material left. You know those snake um, fireworks where you light them and it does the big yes. kind of snake? Okay, yeah. same kind of idea. Okay. You're using a very porous small particle and you actually are left with a material after the fire. Okay. So the reason those are good is one, they've already been burned. So if you burn them again, they're not going to react Two, they're very pure because they've been burned. And so the, it's usually a complete combustion. So we had all these good things coming from making them through combustion synthesis. But So we developed a solid material that the Department of Defense uses in gas masks. They use it in several different kinds of um, technologies outside the borders of the U.S. Once that project was done, we had the opportunity to request rights for commercialization. And I think that a lot of times in a research grant, that piece of it is overlooked because as a scientist or an engineering researcher, you're on to the next thing. Right. I'm done with that, right? I even feel like that a lot. I have to really reel myself back in from that a lot. Well, you've even gotten paid for it because <laughs> yes. you've gotten the grant. The money's right. come in like you've right. done the job. I've done it. Yeah. Um, now I want to do something new. Right. But we, so we had the opportunity and... There's so much innovation at universities that never makes it through commercialization. It's a very difficult process, and especially when you're dealing with new technologies. You say the word nano and a million red flags go up. You know, right. there's just different hurdles. Or people's eyes just glaze yeah, over. And no, they- yeah, and um, so we decided as a research team, I had some undergraduate students working with me, and we decided, let's pursue this. Let's Let's try to commercialize it. Let's learn how to do that? How do you take something from a research lab to, you know, the shelves at Lowe's, which right. we've done now multiple times. But in the very beginning, we that's the first material that we started with is okay. how do we take this material? And what we could do, what was so interesting about the material is it was resistant to microbial growth. So it would, bacteria wouldn't grow on it. And if it, bacteria were exposed to it, then um, they didn't continue to grow which is effectively eliminating them. Was that something that surprised you or that you expected when you were developing it? I mean, was that like a, a, a happy byproduct of... No, of, that's what we were trying to do was for the, the DOD. Okay, mm-hmm. okay. Because, okay, we talked about how nanomaterials the, have different prop- properties. One of the properties they can have is to be antimicrobial. Okay. So we were, we were, when we pitched it to DOD, we knew this was the property we were wanting to enhance or emphasize in these vinyl materials. And it worked better than any of us thought it would. It was it's so much fun. But we learned some very, very hard lessons through commercialization. Uh, one of the first ones I'll never forget is we, we were doing marketing materials. And it's a group, we're four engineers. Right. But we think engineers think they can do everything. We can, we can do all of it. So we're working on those marketing materials. And then we would put it in front of a group. And they would be like, we don't even know what you're talking about. 
And what we wanted to keep telling people is, but it works, but look how it works. Look at this efficacy, like nothing's growing on it. Look how fast it's. And then finally we got to the point where people were like, stop, like, tell us what it does. Yeah. What's the and problem? Make this, it this interesting, solves. but stop like forcing your scientific data. Like we don't. Anyways, I just remember that moment too, where we were like, oh, but that is a shift we're pushing because this too much. Yeah, you've, you've been figuring out how to solve a Department of Defense problem, right. as opposed to the problem of a guy who lives in a house and shops right. at Lowe's. Exactly, and it's a very different market. Yeah. And it's a different way of communicating and. We realized that we did need some help. We need some help from people who are involved in marketing okay. the, through the college of business. You know, we needed help um, with just all all kinds of components of it. But that's that's when we developed Buffalo Technology Group, and we're able to start launching a line of antimicrobial products that are on the shelves right now. Okay, so tell me tell me about some of those products okay. because uh, people may have interacted with them and they don't know it. Or they may have seen them on the shelves at, at Home Depot, and they right. don't know that that's related to you and to WT and to that research. So what are those products then? So I would say the most popular product is called Paint Guard. And it's just a small, uh, vi say vial, bottle of material. You shake it up and you pour it into a gallon of paint before you paint your walls. And mold will not grow. So it's it's extremely effective, mm -hmm. and it's funny to try to sell something on, with mold here in the panhandle because it's it, so dry. We don't deal with that. Right. But when you look down deep, about 47% of homes here have mold issues. So it's it exists. It's just not something we're totally aware of at the time. We've had a lot of success with that product on co in coastal areas. Um, sure. We're using Talk to it. somebody in Houston. Absolutely. They're and they're like, the oh, I got mold yeah. everywhere. And so Paint Guard is a, is a very popular product for us. It sells every day. Amazon, Lowe's, Walmart, Home Depot. Our next product is Grout Guard. So mm -hmm. similar, except you mix it into grout before you grout any, you know, Surely someone, surely you've seen grout, like mold grow and grout on a shower around And how do here. you get rid of that? Yes, exactly. You can. So what, if you'll read products on the market, they just say they cover it. And we're, that's not what we're doing. So we're not covering it. We're actually eliminating um, that mold from ever being able to grow at all. We're extremely effective against black mold, which was mm. a fun for us to learn how to grow in a lab. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yes. I can imagine. We all started with experiments at home. And <laughs> my kids and husband were like, are we growing mold in the kitchen? I was yes, like, don't yes. touch that. Yeah, sure. um, that's what that wet Barbie doll is doing. So nobody <laughs> mess with her. But yeah, so it, so we have paint guard. We have grout card. We have um, a climbing chalk called Goldilocks. And it's climbing, gymnastics, um, weightlifting gyms, anywhere you would use mm -hmm. chalk. And it's it's very effective. It's highly antimicrobial. And then we also use very specified particle mixtures so that you have an ideal amount, what we call an optimized amount of grip on anything that you're you're using it on. So that's a fun product. It's People a new product. I mean, most people probably aren't going to think about climbing chalk, but they're definitely not going to think about it as something that was developed using nanotechnology right? in a lab just, you know, for a, a for certain kind purpose. of grip. Or, yes. or yep. That's really, did, did you start, well, let's talk about that. Did you start and think, okay, what are some applications for this thing that we have? And somebody said, well, what about climbing chalk? I mean, how do you get there? That's a great question. And I would say that was a hurdle at the beginning. You don't usually develop a technology and then say, where else can we use this? Right. So that's exactly what we were doing. We were using it in oil and gas all the time because um, if you look at offshore, you you coat most things on an offshore platform in some kind of plastic. Mm -hmm. 
well, you can use our material there and then you don't have fouling. So like when you have any kind of hard shell that build up on it, they cause structural failure. So the, our first foray into any industry was oil and gas. And we were also looking at downhole because there's microbes that, that cause pipe failure downhole. And so that's kind of where we got started. And then, yes, we said, okay, we're doing this and we're targeting these industries, but this industry, specifically oil and gas, is very up and down. We were working with the WT Enterprise Center, and I remember David Terry asking us, okay, what are you going to do when oil and gas isn't up? Yeah. And we were all like, oh, that's that's a great question. What are we going to do? And at that time is when Texas had all those hurricanes through South Texas. Do you remember the, mm-hmm. and the biggest fallout from a hurricane is mold growth and it causes structural damage for years, decades. And so at that time we said, okay, there's this huge problem. We have something that we know is very like Aspergillus niger, which is black mold doesn't grow on this. How do we translate that into a commercial product that's usable for people? And so that's kind of how we've we've gotten to to we've developed based on something that's happened almost every time. Okay. With the climbing chalk, we just are a group that does a lot of climbing. <laughs> okay. So we, um, and then you know during the pandemic, and I want to talk about the pandemic because that's when one of our most popular products right. is, is, was launched. But during the pandemic, you start to, started to see like climbing gyms, workout gyms, we couldn't share equipment. Everybody shut those down because we're sharing all this equipment, but we're not doing anything to protect them. And then when they would clean them, you would use like these really harsh chemicals yeah. that are eventually going to tear up whatever it is you're putting them on. So then we said, okay, we've got to put this chalk out there. We know we had it. We've been using it for years personally. And we said, we got to put this on the market and just see what happens. Yeah. Suddenly the idea of, you know, a dozen people dipping their hands yeah. into a bowl Nobody of chalk. likes that yeah. anymore. And, and so the, but during the pandemic at the very beginning of the pandemic. So one of the things we've been working on for a while were st- antimicrobial stickers. Mm-hmm. We wanted to be, we were thinking like push plates and bathrooms. This is all pre-pandemic. So people didn't really care what you touched, except you always thought about like a bathroom door in a public place. Right. And we were talking about, let's do some kind of sticker that's protective, but we didn't have a huge market for it. Like no one really cared. Well, then the pandemic hit and everybody cared about every surface mm-hmm. that we were touching. And we were also aware of- People were buying door openers with yeah, little hooks so that absolutely. they didn't have to touch things. Yes. Yeah. And wearing gloves and putting up all this plastic. And we started looking at the actual virus that was causing the pandemic and looking at, so if we want to deactivate it, how do we have to do that scientifically? And I don't, one of these studies that came out, I want to say it came out in, in April, maybe March or April. So the pandemic pretty much started worldwide, like in January-ish. Mm-hmm. Here, we didn't see anything till spring break. But about that time, an article came out and it was talking about how they actually studied this virus and copper was the, what they saw was most effective against it. Well, we've been working in functionalized copper for a while, and we had actually had a, a specific copper particle tailored for some of our other projects. And so we thought, can we take this and make this something that people can use? Um, so that, that's how we developed Copper Clean. So hmm. we, we can use Copper Clean on door handles, push plates. Man, we I, it's wild, the usages. We're working right now with uh, Vancouver Airport and Transit Systems. We've done... It, all kinds of projects where people would share a common space and a common touch point, and then we all became hyper aware of it. Right. So it was but great for us. I know, like Palace Coffee has the yes. Copper Clean sticker wrapped around the the yep. handles of their doors. Yep. And so when we started testing the actual virus, we tested the first strain, the second strain, and Delta, 
And we were over 99% effective hmm. in mitigating all of them at a touch point. So it, it works. Um, here, again, we have a different kind of view uh, on on things. And so we haven't seen... People relaxed a little sooner here yes, than they did yes. in other places. And of course, I was glad I had six kids at home. I wasn't like... <laughs> I was like, let's yeah, let's go back to school. But I, we've seen there's parts of the world... I mean, Canada is still shut down. Mm-hmm. And so we're seeing a lot of use in in different places in the world for our material. And it's just a sticker. We just tried to make it as easy to use and relevant, easy to install as possible. So I want to ask you to kind of close up this section about how you think of your job and and the division of labor at this Mm -hmm. point, because you're still a researcher at WT. You're still, you know, faculty member there. You're also the CEO founder of Buffalo Technology Group. But those are two very different pathways. It's using the same technology, but the mindset for both of those is different. Right. How do you balance that out? And like, how does WT feel about that? Because it's, <laughs> I, I feel like it's it's pulling some of your time away, but it's doing it in a way that's ultimately good for the university. So I, I just talk to me about, about that divide between commerce and research and education and how that works. It's a great, that's a great question. I, I have not met resistance at WT to this point, in research pursuits. So when I first became the department head for engineering, I talked to my. I remember talking to my dean and saying, "I don't know if I want to do this because I can't give up this piece of me. Mm-hmm. Like research feels like my true self. This is who I am. You know, it'd be in a lab, not <laughs> yeah. I can't signing give, documents yeah, all day. Right? I can't. I don't think I'd give this up. And he said, "I don't think you have to. I think that." You can do both, and let's try it. And and so at that point, I was I was department head, and as we're, I would say the two have gone hand in hand, because as we're hiring new faculty, as we we've just been majorly building the college for the last ten years, and as we've done that, I've been able to hire people who are. I would say a variety of people. You need, you know, I need some people who are strong in research, and I need some people who are strong in the classroom. And ideally, of course, we want you to be good at everything. But, but I think it's given me the perspective in hiring, also to know kind of what we're looking for. I, I want WT Engineering to be different because we're not just doing this to to give you this set curriculum and get you through and get you a job. I want your mind to be, your your brain to be changed through this. Mm-hmm. I want you to think about how you have a great responsibility as an engineer to make a difference in society. We don't just, it's an it's a privilege to have this degree. And it, man, you have to work hard for it. So I'm not saying it's something that's just given to people. But, but once you've gone through that process, what are you going to do with it? How are you going to make a difference for people? And in all of our classes... We practice what we call human-centered engineering. So in your design, you know, you have design projects, you have um, all kinds of things like that. We want pe- we want to do projects that matter for people, that matter for the environment, that matter worldwide. We've tried to take students all over the world to work on projects. I want them to see that it's not just about us. It's, it's so much bigger than that. And when you take them to Central America and they have to use completely different materials than we even have here and speak a different language and they're learning more from locals down there than than they learn here, right? Because mm-hmm. they're they're learning to problem solve using what they have, not solve a problem in a book in Canyon, Texas. And so we try to do things 
on that front that that grow their brains that make them different kinds of people and engineers and i feel like that all comes from my experience through research and through buffalo technology group i've been working with the same team there's four of us that have been together for 10 years now mm -hmm. and i've got to see just their the, who they've become as as people and researchers and so i i do think there's a connection there i think the idea of using technology or developing something new or just somehow utilizing this really critical skill set to make a difference it, it crosses all of those borders with my job so i can find the passion in being the dean of the college because it's similar to to what i have for the research that i'm doing with btg the last question i want to ask is related to this area i i think a lot of people think of the panhandle as being a place for innovation but it's typically in a different context. You know, we, we see a lot of oil and gas innovation mm -hmm. come uh, out of this area. We see a lot of agricultural innovation for sure. Yours is on, you know, the, the engineering and uh, the science side of things. And I wonder, like, do you see that as something that, that continues to grow, that continues to gain a foothold here? Is, is this a good place, you know, to be doing the kind of work that you're doing? I think it's the best place. Because I think there's problems here that we have to address in a unified way, using agriculture, using engineering, using oil and gas, all of those. If we look at the panhandle over the next 75 to 100 years, there are issues with water there. I mean, just sustaining our local industries that when we work together, we can solve them. So I think even as we're looking at new industries that are coming in, we have some exciting new people and companies coming to this area, I think that it's just going to drive that innovation even further. But I think that, yes, I think it's a great place to be because we've got it. We have some real problems that we have to solve if we still want to be here doing yeah. what we're doing in, you know, in the next several years. This episode of Hey Amarillo is supported by Texas Tech Physicians Obstetrics and Gynecology, which has just brought its expert-driven care to Canyon. This brand new clinic right across 4th Street from the First United Bank Center at WT includes six comfortable patient rooms and provides care for patients in all stages of life. Services include annual checkups, menopause management, contraceptive counseling, prenatal care, and more, all from the most experienced obstetric and gynecologic specialists in the region. Call 806-414-9944 to schedule your appointment today. That's 806-414-9944. Okay, I'm back with Dr. Emily Hunt from WT. Emily, this is the part of the show I call 8 Straight. 8 Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum in Canyon. I imagine you're familiar with it. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and its collection includes a number of tools used in the early days of oil drilling in the Panhandle and I chose this because I thought it might have some resonance with you, and maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong. But one of the one of the tools they have is a measuring meter from the 1930s that helped shooters determine the depth of a well so that they could set the nitroglycerin shell at the bottom of it without accidental detonation. Uh, and it's interesting looking at that tool and how it was developed in the 1930s when right. it was a lot harder to to deal with all the precision and stuff back then. So you can see that in the petroleum exhibit at uh, Panhandle Plains and learn more at panhandleplains.org. Okay, so the first question, when you think of Amarillo or Canyon 10 years from now, what do you hope for? 
I'm going to go back to just your example right now from the museum. So so even then, the Panhandle region was about innovation. Mm-hmm. We had problems, and we're figuring out how to solve our own problems. And and I think that's what we're a strength, and it's what we're good at. And I would say as the College of Engineering, in, in the next 10 years, I want us to make a difference in water, in water engineering. What are some radical things that we've got to be trying right now in order to sustain our agricultural industry mm-hmm. in, in 75 years? So in 10 years, I want to be able to say, we're doing things. We're, we're moving in the right direction, and we're developing the technologies that are going to make a difference for the people here. Is, is that something that your field of research could have some impact on me. I'm trying to think of, of nanotechnology mm-hmm. and working with all these materials, but then also with a naturally occurring water. Right. Like, where do those interact? Well, I would say I have faculty that we've hired that are more qualified to work on this project than I am. Okay. <laughs> so at this point, I'm trying to put the pieces together here. So get the right people in the region so that we can start moving in that. Yes, we look at clean water solutions with our technologies all the time. But what we what we want to talk about here is desalination. I mean, just things that we haven't done in the Panhandle, but we you know we have access to the Dockham or Santa Rosa or you know whatever sure. you want to call it. But what can we? How can we solve this problem that we have using our own resources? And I, and I really think we can do it. Okay. Other than wind, what does this area have too much of? Maybe youth sports leagues. Okay. <laughs> no, it's probably on me for just having so many kids. <laughs> I think every parent is going to say that at some <laughs> yeah, point. Yep. And I'm always going to be a proponent of the wind. And well, I, that's yeah, true. I am. No complaints there, right? Nope. Oh, to me, it's an energy source that we can use to do some of these novel things. Okay. What does this area not have enough of? Indian food restaurants. All right. We have approximately two, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's uh, and, and that sometimes is surprising to me because we have a really strong... Indian community here. Yes. Um, it's just that their talents don't always go in the food direction. I mean, mm-hmm. There's there's a lot of a lot of really smart people, but they're not right. They're not cooking outside. The no, homes. I rely on my neighbors to cook for me Indian food, and I keep trying to talk one of them into opening yeah, a restaurant. I, I would get behind that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How do you describe Amarillo and Canyon to people outside this area? For me, it's home. So I say this with full sincerity. I think this region is beautiful. I love the open skies. I love that it's fresh. I love that we are really trying to optimize our wind and our land. And I I just think this region is sincere and authentic. Um, people are hardworking and kind. It's the students that I get into my program, and mm-hmm. you see it come through in all that they do. So I think this is an incredible place to be. What's your favorite local neighborhood? I think the square in Canyon. Okay. Yeah. Love the square. It's come a long ways it since has. you uh, were <laughs> yeah. growing up in Canyon. Absolutely. What's your favorite local restaurant? Joe Taco. All right. It's like really changed things for, for me in Canyon. Okay. <laughs> so. And, and yeah, I've, I'm always curious how the Canyon Joe Taco, which I've only eaten at a couple of times, compares to the Amarillo one, which I eat at pretty regularly. But I, I feel like it's pretty much the same. I think people are satisfied with it. I, I think it's even better. Do you? I encourage you to come and try it. Yes. Okay. And there's a patio. There's an indoor patio, an outdoor patio, all the... Th- it's it's really great. All right. This is a relatively new question, but what's your favorite local food truck? Fruition. 
All right. It's a pretty new one. Yes. And I have a friend that follows this food truck. Like mm-hmm. she knows where they are at any time. And so she's the one we go to. They do we're... like smoothies and yeah. acai bowls and all those yeah. things. It's perfect for like a pre-volleyball game snack or okay. <laughs> yes. All right. Last question. When was the last time you visited Cadillac Ranch? I love this question. Speaking of materials that yes, have to weather a lot of different absolutely. changes, right? Well, so personally, uh, we have six kids in our family. Mm-hmm. And our, we have a tradition when, whenever we adopt a child, we go to Cadillac Ranch, we do our last name on, on one of the cars, and then we do a family picture with our newest member, you okay. know, highlighted. You so, say whenever we adopt a child, like it's a well, regular occurrence no, you in your, your <laughs> yeah, family? I, I am saying it like that. Um, so we have, we have four biological kids and then two that have been adopted. Okay. And so the first one was adopted and we did this in 2016. All right. And then we just adopted our second one. And so that's that's on our list of things that, that we're going to do to celebrate. Okay. That's great. So that's that's when we go. Yes. Okay. Well, that concludes my eight straight questions. I like to close by asking my guest to endorse something. So what's one thing you would want listeners to know about or to experience? I think I would say Paladera CrossFit. Okay. So it's a gym in Canyon. And it has such a friendly community that there's lots of class times during the day. I think it helps to know that you're going to be exercising with other people. Mm-hmm. And the, the owners are local from this area and most of the membership is as well. And I just think it's a great place. And so I recommend that you try Paladera CrossFit. Okay. Do they use BTG chalk? Absolutely. Right? <laughs> uh, I would hope so. Yeah. I, the people who um, get into CrossFit, I think stick with it because of the community, not always the exercise itself. I agree. I agree. Yes. Okay. Well, Dr. Emily Hunt, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to Emily for the interview. You can learn more about Buffalo Technology Group at btgproducts.com. Thanks to sponsors, the Discover Amarillo app, Texas Tech Physicians Obstetrics and Gynecology, and to Panhandle Plains Historical Museum for supporting the show. This podcast exists on a weekly basis because of listeners like you and the local people who support it financially through patreon.com slash heyamarello. Heyamarello's executive producers include Jason Burr, Katie Linker, Corey Burns, Jess Heredia, Wilson Lemieux, Josh Wood, Wes Reeves, Patrick Burns, and Barbara and Jim Witten. This has been episode 269, and I got through this one somehow using words like obstetric and gynecologic and microbial, and it was hard. I made a lot of mistakes, but thanks to Angelina for editing that out. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.